Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to wherever you are. This is the Curly Flower and welcome on Fashion on the Beat. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So I know I have been a bit MIA these uh, weeks because, you know, it's May. I'm a senior, finals week. Um, I'm transitioning from undergraduate to graduate life. The real world is hitting me. The pandemic is, uh, you know, a particular situation that we are all dealing with. And uh, yeah, I know times are rough, but I am back. <laughs> I was never away. Um, I actually have a lot of content that I want to share with you guys. But uh, one step at a time. So I want to come back from my brief MIA with a final project that I've been working on for one of my civic engagement classes. And uh, yes, so I wanted to share this with you. And uh, this is a final project for the course that uh, I have been taking. And um, yeah, so I'm gonna explain um, what I'm gonna do in this episode and uh, I will not discuss a, an article of mine or an issue that happened uh, lately on the news or whatever. I'm just gonna have a chat with a friend of mine and um, you know discuss about something that is really relevant and something that somehow can be linked um, to fashion journalism. It's uh, storytelling, social representation, and all, you know, the social justice issues, problematics, and dynamics that are intertwined in, uh, in communications and in uh, journalism. So, yes, this is a good coming back on my podcast. All right, all right. So, let's start. So for my final project, I want to focus, I wanted to focus on how language and communications is imperative, imperative in our lives. I must um, tell you what this course is about and, uh, you know, so that you can have an idea of what I'm talking about. So this is a course, it's called um, Writing Against Power and... Uh, um we have learned so many things in this class actually it's one of the best classes intense but best classes i have ever taken at hofstra and um it's uh, under the civic engagement studies uh i'm a journalism major so i'm uh in the school of communications and uh, i am planning to uh gain a civic engagement minor and I was interested in this class because I wanted to know how to you know write and understand writing the art of writing and communication written communication um, in a in a different uh, context that it is yes academic but also that can be applied off campus uh, and have a purpose like a a social justice purpose or oriented orientation so 
I wanted something like this. And I liked the title. I was hooked by the title, Writing Against Power. So I wanted to understand, you know, what was all that jazz. And uh, basically what we've learned, like we have uh, explored many uh, texts and writers where uh, it was possible to um, understand the views that these people uh, have uh, on um, written, verbal communication and uh, how does the English language plays a role in uh, everyday life and how important is and fundamental and a privilege is to know how to express yourself and uh, have raise your own voice and also understanding when someone raises a voice uh, either with you or against you like do you want to understand that message and how do you understand that message so you know without further details because I don't want to get too analytical but this was you know the core of the um, the course and what I took out most from the course so I think that I've grown up a lot as a person and as a writer thanks to this course so I wanted to share with you guys my final project um you know, with this podcast and a blog, you will find a blog um, on um, my um, primary blog. I will give you a link. I will leave their link and also um, under the description of the podcast so that you can um, get access to the um, post where I'm gonna you know, publish, post <laughs> the the whole content. And, uh, and you can also read um, the blog post. Um, and yeah, so that's it. So I will, oh, you can find this project and this podcast also through a hashtag. It's called uh, uh, Storytelling as Resistance. Hashtag Storytelling as Resistance. And you can find it on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, yeah, so let's let's start. Let's let's dig in. So the goal for this assignment is to defend an issue that is important to me. So as I said to you, I feel like that I have grown a lot um, as a, a writer and as a woman, I would say, through this uh, course because there were like this course opened many. I wouldn't even say opened, I would say more um, gave me the tools to be more deep and understand all these issues that I have lived and experienced, but I wasn't able to, you know, put on paper or in this case on a screen, you know, typing on my computer. So... I wanted, you know, I needed documents that could uh, back me up. I needed, you know, an educator that could lead me and making me understand and push me to discover new authors and uh, new stories that could uh, make me understand what is actually writing in social justice, about social justice, for social justice. And I think that is important as a fashion writer to know 
how to write about these issues and um, you know having in mind what social justice is so an issue that is important to me is uh, representation you know um, through my book that I'm writing fashion on the beat the campaign is still on link is on my Instagram Twitter Facebook you know where you can get it no worries <laughs> the campaign is still open for the better community readers and um, if you want to sustain the campaign support it you can get access to the link share it uh, and uh, you know do what social media usually gives you the chance to do did i worry it right anyways <laughs> so even with my book i think that you know i uh the the big message that i want to give to others is represent the, rep the underrepresented this is my mission and uh, this is what i want to do um this is what i've been doing what i've been trying to do during my four years in college and um I feel like this is my vocation, you know? I want to leave a legacy where I can see people who look like me, people who think uh, is open-minded like me or, has, uh, or wants to approach to this lifestyle of mine have an access, uh, have a, a landmark, have a role model, which, uh, you know, can be a community, can be a person and uh, a place and uh, yeah so in order to represent the underrepresented i have always to question what is actually social representation and um, given my background italian brazilian born and raised in italy with a fa brazilian family but living in the united states you know i want to understand more and more what is social representation and uh, what is fair, what is not fair, and uh, specifically in the fashion industry and journalism industry, what's, you know, who is, there is a hierarchy. I want to see who is at the top, who is at the bottom, why it's happening. And I believe that, you know, language is at the core of this. So if a language is able to give access to different communities and people to express themselves. There are possible, possibility, infinite possibilities with which these individuals can um, raise a culture, uh, improve a culture, develop a culture, and be represented and represent something. So. Yes, so I would like to discuss on social representation in the English language. And the main question I want to find answers and clarifications to is how does the English language reflect its speaker's culture? So we know that English is uh, vastly spoken in the world. It's not the first language in the whole world, but it's vastly spoken. Um, and it, there are many territories uh, that uh, in which in where English is uh, the first language. 
in the USA, in the United Kingdom, Ireland, um, Australia, New Zealand, you name it, you know, there are so many. Um, so in order to answer this question and, uh, you know, just to have a chat, I've decided to chat with uh, Jordan Lloyd, an African-American linguist based between Philadelphia and New York. He's a great friend of mine. So I want to welcome Jordan. Hi, Jordan. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for being here with me. Um, I have met Jordan at Hofstra University. I was an undergraduate student. I was, I believe, first year, first year or second year. Where was I? I think. I think you were a freshman. Yes, yes, because I met or you. First year, depending on terminology. Exactly. Yeah, I was a first year student because I actually don't believe in the term freshman because. Like, <laughs> this, okay, I know. this is something that, okay, freshman, just analyze the word freshman. Am I too analytical if I consider that a little bit misogynistic freshman because it enhances like just the man part instead of like just fresh women or fresh men? Like I had a discussion this in my freshman year with my, uh, at the time, uh, uh, roommate. And I remember that I was using freshman, you know, the word freshman, but she said, oh no, I don't believe in that word because, you know, it's like, um, it's so sexist because blah, 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 blah. And she was explaining me this. And I said, oh my gosh, you're actually making some points. And from that moment on, I've sta I started saying first year and then sophomore, junior, because it was, it's more inclusive. I don't know how you feel about that. It is. That's kind of the history with so many words in English because the suffix man became the suffix that indicated um, generally a man, but also a person who did something because there was this concept in English that the masculine grammar forms would would imply other genders, but they really didn't. You know, it was a way for language to control the representation of who was important, who was doing things, who had opportunities. And we see that all the time. If we look at historical documents, they talk about how mankind did this or how man did that. And in most of those cases, they don't mean all humans or all people from this country who were involved in a discovery or or an architectural structure, they mean the men who did this action. Mm -hmm. They yeah. rarely ever explicitly imply the women who were also involved or the non-binary people or the people who are agender. It just wasn't included. Yeah, so I was having... It's one of the first, I would say, linguistics experience of the English language that I've, you know, come across. So, yeah, I met you during my first year <laughs> uh, of college. Um, yeah, through my global mentor, Becky, who was also a um, language uh, 
scholar. Like uh, she studied uh, languages, right? Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. So I met her, and then I met you. So yeah, that's how the story of Jordan and I, and then we became friends. And he's one of my best friends here in New York, America, world. So yeah, and uh, so with Jordan. I will focus and I will try to find, you know, answers and um, just a, a, a friendly discussion about social representation in the, within and in the uh, English language. And I will focus on three main aspects that can help me understand, discover and navigate this issue. Um, so the aspects will be broken down in three questions and themes. And uh, one of these is, we can start with uh, like the experience um, and the connection between multiple countries and the English language. So my question to you, Jordan, is how other countries can learn English and the culture that its language is part of? Learning the language just to know the words and the grammar structure and the terms of phrase is not as hard as learning the culture and the subculture and the context of the subcontext. So I would say to start off, it's always good to get a textbook. If you're a textbook person or if you're an auditory visual learner, you can check out videos online. If you like to be a little bit more interactive, there are so many language learning apps that you can get and they help you practice with daily reminders and pictures and sounds and mini games. It all depends on how you learn. So you first have to know about yourself and the best way that you absorb information. And once you know that, then you can start to branch out. After you have some of the basics and you can understand simple paragraphs and small stories, You can go on and expand to things like podcasts and TV shows and YouTube channels about topics that are not just learning the language. Because once you recognize the words, you'll be able to absorb new content in that language. I would even recommend for the gamers out there to play a video game that you've already finished in a new language. Because you already know the story and you know how the mechanics work but the explanation of the content and the storyline will be told to you in the new language and you'll get the really cool interactions of the prompts and the instructions being explained even having the subtitles on so that you can follow what's happening better it can be a great branch off to add more media as much as you can as far as the culture it's really hard to connect to a culture when you don't live in a place where people are speaking that language or people surrounding you are not involved in that culture. The right. best way to expand your cultural horizon is definitely to move to a community where you'll be immersed in the language and the culture and the people and the music and the food and everything that's involved. I totally it's agree. It's hard to get there, but it's imperative. Yes. That's the way that you really push past being proficient or advanced in a language to becoming fluent. You have to live there. It has to be your everyday life. Yes. Yes, I can actually affirm that because um, 
besides my, you know, my journey as an international student, um, this, okay, for two consecutive summers, yeah, summers, I have lived in Queens, in uh, Elmhurst, Queens, and uh, if you're not from New York or familiar with uh, Queens, the neighborhood, um, there is this part which is, uh, I would say it's a borderline with Long Island and Queens. So it's a very, I mean, yeah, it's very, um, you know, far away, like uh, East Queens and uh, East New York. And um, in this area, in this part of the neighborhood uh, called um, Elmhurst, which is close to Corona, is a um, is a neighborhood mostly uh, uh, inhabited by um, Hispanics and the Latinos. So for like every summer, I would spend there three months. So two summers, it would be half a year. And I have like a lot of friends who are from there. Um, so living there and being even if it was just for three months i have learned spanish and it was not like i <laughs> it was incredible because i have taken courses at hofstra of spanish because back in the day when i was a first year <laughs> student i was thinking to minor in spanish and because i have always thought that spanish was a cool language and i've never got the got the chance to never gotten the chance to you know speak spanish so i was okay it would be nice you know something edgy that i could do uh in college um but then uh yeah so i used i did um some courses well actually just one course and then i had more multiple friends who spoke spanish or were hispanic uh, or from spain you know um but then I literally learned it. I learned more Spanish just being inside the community. And as Jordan said, if something is part of your daily life and uh, you literally live with it, it's, it becomes like something imperative to learn the language, to move around. Because uh, even though, yes, it's in New York, you know, New York in the, in the US, you speak English, but... You know, being friends with the, the neighbor or just, you know, being part and uh, talking with the community that is part of that, um, you know, uh, territory of the city, you know, you become more and more involved and uh, somehow you just start talking and understanding and also picking up uh, the accent sometimes in uh you know, the language that they speak. So, yeah, it is imperative to actually be physically present in one place so you can understand the language, the dialect, the, you know, everything that is around, you know, it's part of their culture because language is culture. And uh, I would say, you know, within the English language, I... You know, Jordan can say that, like, he can definitely uh, affirm that. But my English has improved. And uh, especially for the slang, 
or like just you know understanding other people and um, you know being more having a, a flex, more flexible ear um, so even if my accent is still you know very uh, Italian I would say European but now my ears have uh, learned and uh, to understand some sounds and uh, some inflections too that uh, were not part of my English education back home because um, at home, like, basically I came here with a mid-Atlantic uh, accent. So an accent that I would learn from TV shows because, and games, games too. Like, I'm not a gamer, but uh, I used to, like, when I was little, play, you know, some video games or computer games. And... Uh, Okay, they would have like squeaky voices or whatever for children, but they didn't like teach me any anything about dialects or slang or something that you will literally learn from the streets. So when I came here, it was a cultural shock because I thought that, okay, in America, they're going to talk like this or like... I didn't even think America. I would think that UK, US, or every country where English is the first language, they're going to speak like this, period. But instead, no. Like, it's like Italy. There are so many dialects and uh, so many inflections and accents, even in cities, in the cities um, themselves. Like, one part of the town talks in a way and the other part talks in another way. And... Uh, I got the chance to explore this, you know, by being physically here in the United States and uh, having friends, um, African-American friends who speak uh, uh, more, um, you know, Ebonics or African-American vernacular and uh, also people um, uh, from uh, an Asian heritage and Jewish people and, uh, you know, so many countless <laughs> of people and uh, you know that's how I picked up not only the language how it really is but also the beauty of the cultures and uh, you know the customs that I would learn and experience so yeah that that made me think of uh, Min Zan Lu's uh, text that we have uh, discussed in our class um, that she uh, discusses and she mentions how in the 1950s she got to explore English at uh, her home um, in different ways. One was the English that was taught at her home and one was at school. Two different uh, ways of learning English because one was more, I would say, liberal or like democratic or like with that kind of approach and the other one was more politically influenced more um, structured thinking about by thinking about how the countries that use English um, you know are in relation to China or the region uh, where she is, where she was, I mean. <laughs> and uh, this was uh, a very impactful aspect in her life because 
it was like a process to blend these two ways of teaching and learning and only when she was grown up and she moved to an English spoken country it was then that she expanded her um, knowledge and uh, full understanding on how the English uh, language could work and she was able to represent herself uh, through English and uh, her experience and uh, yeah so that's one thing um, so I've mentioned some yeah the dialects in the USA there are so many um, and I've mentioned the ones that I am more familiar with is the African-American vernacular um, but I'm also aware of other dialects and uh, other experiences that um, other mi minorities, especially in America, have to deal with on a daily basis. And uh, they are so important dialects. And it is something that I want to really highlight this fact because I wish that when I was back home, I would have learned more about dialects and their structure because my professors will say that it is incorrect to say a phrase like, they be doing like that. They would correct me with a, a red pen and say, no, this is incorrect, English. And so when I would talk with someone who's, a, who's not an academic or someone that um, was not a professor or anything, me, not an English speaker, I would say, I, not say, but I would think, oh, maybe I shouldn't uh, take lessons or, uh, talk, or talk with them because uh, they will not understand me, I would understand them, I don't know, or even the opposite. So I was afraid that I was brainwashed. When I, I will thank my mom and dad <laughs> for exposing me to other, you know, cultures and people from, you know, different backgrounds so that I can, I could understand. And they were willing me, willing to uh, teach me how to relate and how to learn English, not only in an academic setting, because m most of the times academic, academia can be both useful and beneficial but also hurtful so yeah um yes. <laughs> right so yeah yeah jordan like again uh, i talk what a lot what you're talking about there is what we call in linguistics there's prescriptivism and there's descriptivism prescriptivism is the kind of language and grammar lessons and rules and structure that you get from the education system and the you know, the people who really call themselves the elders because they're the ones creating the system, they're the ones saying how everything should go, and they're making the rules because they're older and they're in a position of power. They want the language to be spoken in a certain way because that's their ideal. They are the ones who decide that standard American English has more prestige and more power and is supposed to be seen as better than African-American English or Latino English or Native American English. They create the structure that gives prestige to the different dialects by representation through the media, with books, with 
with the news, with magazines. It's all a huge structure that was built to make it so that knowledge and information were restricted. And if you didn't fit the mold of the concept that they wanted for a speaker of English, you have less platform to share your perspective. And then with descriptivism, these are the linguists who view all dialects and all languages as equally powerful and equally capable. It's about describing how the dialect works, how the people communicate, how they like to share information, how they structure their ideals, how they structure their, their concepts of themselves. Because mm -hmm. the only important thing about language is if I say something to another person, can that other person understand me? Exactly. If the other person can understand my meaning, which is the point of communication, then I said it correctly, just between those two or three, however many individuals are in the conversation. Right. That's the part about communication that is the only ideal. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, because... In a perfect theoretical world. Yeah. No, because... Yeah, it makes perfect sense, because at the end of the day, Yes, grammar is important and it gives a structure, but even within dialects, there is a grammar. So yes. I, you know, you know, there is an episode, uh, I think that I've never told you. So this is something new that I'm sharing on the podcast, real and on live right now. <laughs> but uh, no, like when I was, uh, I think... Um, I was little, I think that I was like 10 years old or 11 years old, something like this. And uh, one day my dad, um, I think, I believe that we went like to London, like we went back from, we were, yeah, we were in Florence, uh, but uh, we had just visited London and uh, um, I was, you know, I was... I had some books that, like kids' books, that um, could uh, help me, you know, learn English, or they were like stories, short stories, and uh, and my one of our friends, she is uh, Jamaican, and she uh, she brought us to uh, the carnival in Notting Hill, and. Uh, you know, my mom and dad, we went there and, you know, we were like recalling all these uh, events and it was, uh, it was amazing because it was, it, it looked like Brazilian and like music and it was like a lot of colors and everything, jerk chicken, so good, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, you know, like, um, my dad, like, and my mom too, this is a shocking thing, you know. Uh, my parents were like, yeah, but, you know, it's better, like, if you go to the British Institute or you learn English from this kind of person and this kind of other person because, uh, like, English from someone who's not na native or, like, you know, from the Caribbean or which is, you know, at the beginning, okay, I'm going to finish one thought and go to another um yeah that's me with my stream of consciousness it's a very it's a weakness of mine 
it's I have 10 tabs in my mind right now but okay let me close one at a time so they were like oh yeah but usually learning English from you know someone from the Caribbean it's difficult because they have a thick accent or someone even from you know Australia or New Zealand or all, all these countries like it's really difficult you should learn English from someone who's from London and uh, no matter if uh, he or she is black white latino but someone who's from london new york or the big cities in the u.s but nobody else because you will get confused and they you know then i came here got exposed to other dialects but then i went back home and uh, i realized how people also speak english back home not only in Italy, but also in France. And I understood, like, having conversation also with, conversations also with my friends back home. We were talking about, like, high school and middle school. And they were noticing that I was speaking English like rappers. English like uh, so fluent or anything. And I was like, really? Like, I don't understand. And, uh, and then something hit me. I was like, wow. Like, people, I don't know how, but the English language in non-English speakers' countries, like sp English-spoken countries, uh, this, like, you only learn standard English. The others are just considered wrong by ignorant people or incorrect by academic people people in academia who have a degree and can teach english they think that is incorrect and i have me who i feel that i'm not that qualified but i can be a testimony that many dialects in english are not incorrect and actually the children in other countries they should be exposed to these dialects too, in addition to, you know, standard English, because they can understand the culture too. So it's a double learning process. They understand, the, they, they understand a language, they get to learn a language, but at the same time, the many aspects of a language that can be traced back to a culture so, for example, if I go to Jamaica, I know that I can expect that kind of accent. If I go to Australia, I know like those words and like those sayings or whatever it's going on down there. <laughs> I can, you know, I can be familiar with that, but I'm not that culture shock, like culturally shocked. So, yeah. I wouldn't be that surprised. And I think that in such a cosmopolitan world and global world we live in, you know, where globalization is at the core of everything, I think that children right now, they should learn more at a very early age what is social representation within languages. They should. People should definitely be exposed to different dialects because... The language is an organism. It's always growing and changing and morphing and multiplying and becoming new, new 
entire creatures. It's not a static thing. It's always good to start with the standard form of the language so that you can get the grammar structures down very well, get the general pronunciation down very well, know how to conjugate verbs. They're all extremely important. But after you can do that, if you want, if your goal is to be able to communicate and understand things in the language and to be able to relate to people and function in real life situations with people of different educational backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different levels of native fluency, you have to be exposed to different dialects because there are points when, you know, a dialect is supposed to be a mutually intelligible subset of a language so that if I'm from the East Coast and I'm talking to someone from the West Coast, for the most part, we can understand each other and we won't have too many issues. Or if I'm from the US and I'm talking to someone from Scotland or Australia or London, uh, the UK, we could all understand each other. They're mutually intelligible dialects. But within those categories of English are so many more nuances than just mutual intelligibility. It's slang, it's idioms, it's pronunciation. Sometimes it can even be slightly different grammar structures. Even things like your diction, choice of a specific word to describe a thing, they're all determined by your language background and your language schema, which is your brain's entire concept of language that you've carried with you from the time that you're born until the time that you die. Because everything that we have in the world can be described with language. That's how we learn information and how we express everything around us we can't have a culture without the language to describe who we are and who our ancestors were and how things have changed we can't have history without people having been able to communicate what happened at the time when it happened and then write songs about it or write books about it or make hieroglyphs about it none of that stuff would be there if humans couldn't share information Exactly. Yes. And they don't do that formally all the time. Sure, there are times when a sentence might be incorrect because the grammar is to such a degree that it's not understandable. But there's a difference between a sentence that doesn't function because it doesn't mean what you're trying to make it mean and a level of appropriateness for the situation. Mm -hmm. that's the thing that descriptivism really wants to focus on. It's not always about is something technically correct or technically incorrect, because all human languages are invented. They are all made up. That means all of the rules that we have are just agreements between the people talking that something could stay consistent. It doesn't mean that there can never be new words. It doesn't mean that there can never be new grammar. It just means that the people in the conversation need to have a basis for reference. And if the basis for reference, it can't always be the same. It has to change depending on the situation. If I go to give a formal academic lecture, of course I'm going to address the audience more formally and use maybe a slightly higher register of pronunciation. I might leave out, for example, some contractions, I might try to avoid vocal fillers, 
But if I'm just talking to my friends at home on the couch or a person at a store where I'm asking a question to find something, I'm not going to be as formal as possible because it doesn't fit the situation. Using the wrong register can sometimes be a bigger, more intense error than making a grammatical mistake. Mm -hmm. It usually is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's why I think that, you know, going back to the, to the episode that I was remembering uh, with my parents suggesting me to learn like coming back from the Notting Hill Carnival, sharing their memories and uh, me saying, oh, but I didn't understand what, what they were saying, but I had so much fun. And they were like, yeah, yeah, but you know, it's better. Like they were then speaking about my English and they said, no, you should, you know, stick to these books because it is better for your English because you're studying now. I know that their suggestion, their suggestion was coming from a good place of, uh, from the heart, you know, but that's because they were not instructed to learn English with different dialects because my dad yeah. only knows standard English, my mom too, and she's black, but like this happens to, uh, whoever talks or tries to learn English, because I saw this in Brazil, I saw this in Italy, and uh, Brazil is mostly, a... Brazil is so diverse, I cannot say <laughs> that it's mostly white or black, it's literally diverse, but Italy is definitely predominantly white, and, uh, you know, mm, so I was, you know, it was just a stream of consciousness that I was having and it made me think that the younger generations right now are starting to being more and more interested in English in different forms, like not only English, also other languages too, because think about French. French is not speaking, spoken just in, uh, um, in France, but in many African countries too, in Asia too, in the Caribbean too. And, uh, you know, it faces problems or like stigmas like English. Creole, you will never find a textbook in a French school in Paris in Creole. Blasphemy. The French would call it blasphemy. You know? But so, it would be so useful. Exactly. That's but like the old, I feel like the older generations, they were always like in other countries while learning English or another language, they were taught that there is only one way to speak English or I don't know if you learn French, French, that's yeah. it. And you have only two or one country of reference. And within that country, you just have one dialect. And that dialect will speak up for the whole nationalities, the whole, the whole nationalities that are part of that country. 
you know so yeah like i feel that with education right now and with the cosmopolitan attitude that is uh, more integrated in society uh, even if it has to be more and more developed but um, I think that the younger generations can have the possibility to learn that English have the power has the power to represent socially represent somebody in different ways I hope they do too yeah but speaking of representation so one last question and you know point um the language and the grammar in the lgbt plus community so how do you so first of all are you part of the uh the community uh i am an ally so i have made studies um and like i have many friends who are part of the community and they have, um, you know, they have been dealing with um, people who do not respect them for their gender, for their sexual orientation, even on a written piece because they don't respect them um, for their pronouns, they don't respect them on the ways you can describe them or... um, you know, especially for when it comes to creative writing or on on uh, on the screens, like cinema, movies, and TV, there are always the same narratives for uh, lesbian characters, transgender characters, uh, asexuals, people on TV, on TV shows. Uh, it seems that there is always just one narrative that gets recycled every time. But this is not... Yes. Right? Am I right or am I right? <laughs> it's, it's so still. It's so still. It's so still, but why is like that? Like, uh, is there something that language can do? Like, can English, in this case, we're talking about English, so can English be a tool, a medium, a channel with which this community can be represented? Language is a tool for everything. The, the way that it becomes powerful is by language spreading. If people don't have words to describe a concept, then it can be argued that concept doesn't exist or that a concept is vague and you can't really do something about it or you can't explain it or you can't share it with others if you can't describe it. So the words that we have to describe ourselves apply in the same way as the words that we learn from our families as our history and as our culture. When we claim an identity and describe ourselves and reach out for people like us and other people who are also marginalized, that's how we start to create a new culture of our own where we are valid and inclusive and where everyone has the opportunity to be themselves and be equal and be represented. The problem with the mainstream media is that most of the people who have jobs writing scripts for shows and movies and documentaries or 
even even video games, they're not necessarily people who are allies in the community or actually people in the community who are who are LGBTQ plus. You know, they're they understand that people who are different from them exist, but they've never had an experience of being inherently other than everyone around you. So their ability to give a story to a queer character is very limited. All they really know how to do is say that a character is queer and make them do two or three things differently than the other characters or keep them in the background as a secondary or tertiary character who gets a few lines. And it's so sad and so stale because we've had television for, I don't even know, like 50 or 60 or 70 years, possibly even slightly longer than 70 years. And yet so many of the narratives that are told are redone. It's over and over and over again, because there's a structure that is supposed to be not the ideal, but it's sort of like a preset blueprint that shows and and movies and novels are supposed to follow about how a story is told. And it seems that sometimes people don't know how to break away from it. Once they do, the representation will be so powerful because as kids growing up, we are absorbing information about our societies and we're learning information about ourselves and we're looking to the future. We want to see people like us succeeding. We want to see people like us doing cool things. We want to see people like us just acting normally on a TV show as a character. We want to see people like us being the protagonist of a, sh of a TV show where the show is all about them being who they are, but also having a normal life, going to work and having friends and you know, possibly dating or having struggles. Yeah. That's, that's what we aspire to. Mm -hmm. Because how do you know that people like you as a marginalized child can be successful and be out there when your portrayals of adult life are the adults in your family and the adults on TV. Ooh. If you never see anyone like yourself succeeding, how do you have hope for the future? How do you feel like you're a real and valid human being? And that's what we gain back by creating our own culture and using our own forms of language. There isn't really a concept such as LGBTQ plus dialect that doesn't exist right now. But having shared narratives is what brings the community together. So we can create a platform where we feel stable and we feel connected. For example, when you ask someone their pronouns, you're giving them the chance to say, this is how I like to be referred to. This is what makes me feel good about myself. And this is how I like to be represented. And 
language can always change to accommodate that stuff. Mm-hmm. There's, there's singular they, for example, as a pronoun. People who use singular they as a pronoun like to not be referred to as specifically he or she. That can be for a complete variety of reasons. Little do many people know that singular they has always existed as a singular. So many prescriptivist linguists and grammar teachers and generally boomers will say they is plural. Why do you want to be referred to as plural? You're not multiple people. You're a he or a she. But we can even go back to texts written by Shakespeare that included singular they. People use singular they all the time and don't even realize it. You're in the grocery store and you're walking through an aisle. Maybe you look down and you see a wallet. You pick it up and you ask, did anyone lose their wallet? Nobody asks, did anyone lose his or her wallet? If grammar were so important that you can't use singular, you can't use they as a singular to describe an individual person who doesn't want to be referred to as he or she, how can you at the same time use it to describe an unknown subject and makes no sense because that unknown subject would theoretically be one person using they as your pronoun isn't about being multiple people it's just that they was already in english functioning in two capacities it was already singular and it was already plural it's just that the singular form was a little bit less widespread i guess less chosen And there were different periods of time in English where a lot of people who didn't want to be referred to as he or she tried out other pronouns. I remember hearing about all kinds of them throughout high school and middle school before singular they started to really become a widespread choice. Mm -hmm. And those pronouns didn't really catch on and they didn't become popularized, I guess, they didn't become recognized because they didn't fit well in English. There was one... What were they? Z, Zer, Zim. There were a few of them. I think there was Han, one that had Han in it. There were a couple of them. I can't recall all the examples at, at the moment, but... Some of them were borrowed from other languages that already had a gender-neutral personal pronoun. Some of them were made-up words, or some of them were blends of his and hers, or he and she. So they were trying to combine the concept of pronouns that already existed and put them in English to do a new function. And it just it wasn't able to really take root. Because the people using them would always have to explain, hi, my name is Riley, and my pronoun is these, them, theirs. Mm-hmm. And people would be like, what, what is that? I can't even say that. So it became a real blocker to just being able to describe your identity, that yeah. you want to tell people who you are and be referred to correctly, but they might not be able to pronounce what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So they're much less likely to do it than if it's something they already recognize. And that's where singular they really gained its platform because they was already singular and they was already plural. 
it was out there, it was being used, it just wasn't being claimed. So it became claimed, and once they was claimed as a singular, that's where all of the political tension started to rise. Many of the people who were against singular they were not against the concept of using they to refer to an unknown subject of an undeclared gender, which could also be applied to a known subject of an undeclared gender. They were against the concept of a known subject not declaring a gender. They didn't want you to be able to say, I don't identify as he and I don't identify as she, because they don't want that concept of a person to exist. It's not that they can't say a different pronoun or that they can't use a slightly different sentence than they would have in the first place because we use different sentences than we've ever used in our whole lives every day. We have a chance to say a new sentence. It's just about the fact that they don't want people to be different from them. They don't want people to be recognized as valid, as equal. Because when we give representation and we give recognition to different groups, we're also taking away power from the main idea of representation, the main group that is shown as the society or the culture or the country. It's hard for human beings to give up power to other individuals. And it's that's been a struggle through the entire history of, honestly, the entire earth, all animals and all plants. It's always a struggle of power. But power and politics shouldn't necessarily enter into the conversation when me calling someone their correct pronouns doesn't take anything away from me. It takes nothing away from who I am as the person or what I have in the world or where I can go in the future to address someone correctly. Yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> I have nothing, you know, as to back up, it's, I actually learned a lot. Um, I was, I thought that those alternatives of the pronoun they, they were um, actually new, like they were more modern than they, because I remember reading some pamphlets from the um, um, the LGBTQ plus community at Hofstra, like the clubs, they were giving yeah. out pamphlets uh, with all these, with a list of pronouns. And I thought mm -hmm. that those were just variations, but like new var variations, because I've never heard of them. And I never heard with someone, literally, I'd never heard someone referring to one of, with one of those terms, uh, pronouns. So... Yeah, that was um, something new that I didn't know. I thought they were newer rather than I'm older. sure that there are probably some other new third-person singular pronouns that have come up in the past few years because language is always changing. But there was a time before, before singular they became singular they and they just existed as, it's, as it was. It was always taught as plural, but also used as singular. It just wasn't called singular they at the time. Hmm. So before we had they officially or semi-officially functioning in, in two capacities, people 
I've always wanted to be represented without necessarily being tied to a gender. And that concept has always existed. It's not just in English. It's not just in America where people don't, you know, where people are gender inclusive or people are gender neutral or people are gender queer. The concept has always existed. So many cultures, so many histories of cultures have representations of people who were masculine and feminine or who transitioned or who gods that were masculine and feminine. You know, there were concepts of multiple genders in so many different forms. A lot of languages always had a way to refer to humans or gods or animals or plants or whatever concepts could include that characteristic. But as language changes, as different concepts are spread, as different ideologies get transferred from human to human, from culture to culture, from language to language, from religion to religion, things get lost in translation. Mm-hmm. That's true with that. So, so much representation has been erased or nulled or swept under the rug because the people who had the prestige in a language, the people who had power in a country, people who defined a culture on paper, took the concepts that they liked and didn't keep the concepts that they didn't like. Mm-hmm. Yep. They could do that because they were the ones who had all the resources and all the access. They could say, our textbooks are not going to ever show anyone who's gender neutral, or our textbooks are not going to ever show anyone who's black or brown. Our textbooks are not going to show any women. If they didn't want you in there, they didn't put you in there because they were creating that medium. That's why I think that storytelling, you know, that's exactly, okay, that's exactly the purpose, you know, the purpose of this project that uh, I'm sharing with you um, through this podcast is, uh, like, I think that goes beyond um, language itself, because social 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 justice is basically um justice for the people and i think that among the many justice related justice issues that we can think of social rep- social representation with the language on the media and through media and language it's really important it, like it goes beyond a class assignment uh academia it li- literally touches everyone and i think that you know i like you know i i really like the fact that i can you know share this project and my words with the, the hashtag storytelling as resistance because I think that storytelling is important and uh, whether it's non-fictional or fictional, 
And that made me think of Aja Martinez' um, work, um, her essay on how storytelling is fundamental for um, minorities when learning and approaching to another language. Um, I think, yeah, 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 storytelling is a form of, is a written form of resistance because you are allowed to, like, you have so much power in a pen or on a keyboard. I believe that, like, with every inch of my body, <laughs> I totally have 100% belief and trust in writing and experience exploring and expressing yourself with communication, written communication. I think it's a privilege to be able to write, to be able to understand communication. And uh, yeah, like there is so much historical, there's like historical content that can help you understand how um, storytelling can be beneficial for one group of people and uh, make the, making them more empowering than others um, but also uh, and on the contrary it can be beneficial to the minorities that can literally with a, they can be revolutionary and they can change the games on the table and uh, they're able to you know enter in those rooms where they're not heard enough and uh, become part of their representation in general so yeah i'm i'm very glad like to use this storytelling as a resistant um resistance um ha hashtag well, um, the questions were just three, but we talked a lot. Like, it's one hour and ten minutes. We talked a lot. I'm so happy, though. So, thank you, Jordan. You're welcome. Thank you, thank you. Um, you're amazing. Where uh, can we find some of your work online or... Like, can you tell us more about yourself? Online, this might seem contrary to popular belief, general millennials, but I don't really, I don't really do social media that much. You know, I have accounts, but that's not really my area. That's not my platform. I mostly write for class and for myself. So, unfortunately, you can't really subscribe to any of my my different feeds. But I wish I could say that I had more, more things out there. I think the last time I published anything was early high school, possibly. You know, a writing magazine for school. So, how do you... Um like share your thoughts because you have amazing thoughts and like uh you know you're very educated on the subject so how do you share your like do you share your uh 
thoughts and work with papers, academic papers, or like what what context? Because most of the people that will hear this uh, project, this assignment will be people, you know, students, most of them, and uh, people who are, you know, social media active and they want to learn more about subjects that usually are not uh, very much popular uh, on the web, like linguistics. So do you have any suggestions and that, you know, that can wrap up this uh, conversation and discussion and also, um, you know, on social media, like how can we share and use storytelling as resistance, you know? I think that on social media, the best way to share your ideas through language is by telling your story, telling things that have happened to you and connecting to the communities that you're a part of. That can be through Twitter posts. It can be on Facebook with pictures about what you did that weekend celebrating possibly or even writing your own stories, writing your own novels, your own poetry. There are so many forums where you can share parts of your identity and connect to people and they'll give you good feedback and they'll lift you up and support you. That's always great to do. And then academically, if you want to learn about linguistics, linguistics is a very dense topic But once you get the basics and then you get to the intermediate content, you start to really see how linguistics is like the matrix. It's everywhere. Language is behind every system and concept on Earth, except for plants growing because they do that on their own. But if humans have made it, it has language involved. So you can see linguistics everywhere. Mm -hmm. It depends what kind of what kind of learner you are. Like I was saying a little bit earlier on how you best absorb information. But I love to read. So I like to learn from textbooks about linguistics. I like to read online academic articles. You can go on Google Scholar and type in linguistics. You will get billions of articles. There are academic journals that you can follow. So many ways to absorb content. I think there's even a linguistics Reddit If I'm, if I'm allowed to, I can write a shout out. Most definitely, yes. Like There uh, might even be linguistics on TikTok. You never know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but Reddit and Wattpad, I think, like, they are... They're definitely some linguists. Like, I, I'm yeah. 100% sure. Positive. Yep. They're okay. out there. You know, it's, if you go down the block or you know, you're walking through a crowd and you're trying to spot linguists, you'll never really be able to tell us apart from the people standing next to us. But we exist, we're out there, we're learning, we're analyzing, we're sharing information. You just have to sometimes open your eyes or your ears and look for clues as to where linguistics can be hidden. That's true. That's, yes, true. Well, um... Thank you, Jordan, for everything and for being available. Thank you for your presence. And it was a delight. And you're my first guest on the podcast. I am, wow, I'm so happy. Uh, thank I'm, you, thank I'm you. honored. It was my pleasure. I love talking <laughs> about linguistics.
Thank you, thank you. So if you want to uh, read the post that um, is related to this topic, you can check my latest uh, blog post on thecurlyflower.com, which will take you to um, a specific other blog that is, was made for this class, writing against uh, oppression. Uh, I mean, yeah, writing against power, sorry. <laughs> and... Uh, Yes, so thank you for listening. Um, stay tuned for other content. This was a special episode, and I think that for special episodes and interviews, I think that I might switch the format from 30 minutes to an hour and a half. That would be the best because we just have honest conversations, and damn, you learn a lot. So, <laughs> so I think that, yeah, this is the best, and uh, but we'll work on that um so stay tuned there's more definitely more content just let me finish with finals week and everything will be back to normal <laughs> let's hope so um but yeah so thank you for tuning in and uh have a good rest of the day uh, have a good evening have a good night and uh stay blessed thank you